coming up in episode 28. And what does it mean when the horizon clears in the morning? And what does it mean when it smells like grass at night? You know, where do you go? It can't matter whether you're male or female because you both have to be just as good as each other. It's just broadening out the offering of the Olympic Games. It's broadening out the sport. But I think it would be just tragic if you, know, you had footage of a boat sailing along with both sailors below deck in the Olympics. Yeah, we've got some great guests on the show this month to discuss sailing's brand new event at the Olympic Games, the mixed two-person offshore keelboat, which will make its debut at Paris 2024. I'm Alec Wilkinson, looking forward to a global hop this episode as we talk with sailing and media legend Stan Honey. He's in Newport, Rhode Island, as well as Volvo Ocean racer Hannah Diamond, who's in England. But first, let's cross to Sydney. Standing by for us there is President of Australian Sailing, Matt Allen. Hi, Matt. Hi, Alec. Now, Matt, you're also Chair of World Sailing's Oceanic and Offshore Committee. And I mentioned that because I presume you guys, well, were at least part responsible for creating this new Olympic event. So can you just explain how it all came about? Yeah, sure. Well, actually, Stan's the chair, and I'm I'm the vice chair of, uh, of Oceanic and Offshore. But the, the 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 really the concept came up with when we were looking at uh, Tokyo 2020, and there was a a lot of enthusiasm to do a showcase event that would be the the mixed double-handed offshore um, race over uh, three days and two nights, and it was really seen to be actually a, a an opening event for Tokyo 2020. And there was a lot of enthusiasm from OBS being the Olympic Broadcasting uh, Service and a, a way of actually bringing a lot of people into watching an offshore event over a few days. And given that so many of the sailors right around the world we think probably around about 50% of the 70 million people that sail do so on keelboats. Now, not all those keelboats are offshore keelboats, but they are keelboats nonetheless. So there was a lot of enthusiasm to bring it into Tokyo. It sort of fell by the wayside when the just the whole complexity and costs of the 2020 games really got a little bit um, out, of, uh, out of control at one stage. It was really brought back. So this is something that has been developed over you know some years and and also fits in really well with the olympic agenda of 2020 which is to bring equal medal opportunities for uh, men and women in the olympic games but also to bring um, the athletes in equal numbers to the olympic games and that is a really important agenda and obviously sailing is going to achieve that at uh, Paris in 24 or sailing out of Marseille as we will be. And was it the case that the fin class was sacrificed for this new offshore keelboat? Well, no, actually the, the event that was approved was the uh, mixed one person dinghy. And, and, I, and I think that was a, a concept or an event that really people had no idea of how that was going to to work and and the olympics are meant to be a reflection of the sport in general and you know i've never seen or heard of a, a mixed one person dinghy event um being run and so it's actually not true um 
offshore essentially replaced that mixed one-person dinghy, basically put those two people in the one boat and sent them offshore for uh, for three days, two nights. So so that's actually the way it worked, and the fin had been you know, replaced um, before that. Um, and just a point you, you've sort of mentioned, which is the cost of the Olympic Games. Um, and in Tokyo, uh, those costs were getting quite high and, and the organising committee decided to start cutting them right down. Um, but going forwards, don't you feel that this new event, this offshore event, is actually increasing the cost of putting sailing on at the Olympic Games? Well, I think it's actually going to be, because it's in, in supplied one design equipment, you know, the costs actually for competing will be, you know, very cheap. So that is, I think, very good in terms of bringing you know, developing countries and the universality of, of the concept uh, to make it easy for M&As to compete. You know, a lot of, there are a lot of boats that will be similar to the boat used and people can use that as a training uh, boat anywhere in the world. And I think that is the great leverage of this this event that people can actually do it very cheaply can be competitive it's it's going to be in boats that i think will be it'll be more about the ability to sail the boats and it'll be more about you know picking the wind shifts and putting the boat in the right spot whether there's you know a fair bit of wind or whether it's uh, light airs during the middle of the evening you know this will be a sailor's race not a technology race Okay, Matt, well, stay there, please. I'll come back to you shortly because I want to bring in a man who you've mentioned already and who you work alongside on the Oceanic and Offshore Committee, Stan Honey, who's in Newport, Rhode Island. He's also a hugely experienced offshore sailor. In fact, he won the Volvo Ocean Race. Stan, you are also very well known for having um, revolutionised sports TV with the graphics that we are now quite used to seeing, especially in sailing, you know, in the America's Cup and so on, um, with something called LiveLine, the computer graphics that get laid onto the course to make it far more understandable to the uh, viewer. So you've got a huge amount of experience in in TV and media. Um, the World Sailing press release says the longest and toughest of all Olympic sports events. Um, and will bring a new appeal to Olympic rights-holding broadcasters and media. Really? Are broadcasters these days interested in something that lasts three days and two nights? Um, it depends on how you describe broadcaster. You know, there's a lot of different ways of distributing media these days. But an event that, an, a long event has some substantial advantages, you know, for media in terms of it solves all of the time zone problems. And then it also gives you an opportunity for the sort of e-game, you know, for people to sail along. And we've all seen how successful that has been, you know, in Volvo races where people... The you know, e-sailing, yeah. Yeah, they can download their grib files and they can make their own decisions and then race against their mates, but also race against the boats that are actually out there in the real world. Um, and then the 24 hours a day video... Yeah, it may be that at three in the morning that, you know, the boats are drifting around and the sailors are frustrated, but it's still interesting. You meaning you can see how the different sailors from different countries are handling the stress of, you know, whether they're drifting at night or whether they're blasting along in the afternoon. And so I do think that there's some real opportunities that you get with a long event, you know, with the tracking 
Um, so you can see how the fleet's doing with the fact that it solves all of the time zones with the ability to look and listen on board each of the boats. And then, of course, the traditional TV, they can always do a cut and then come up with the highlights. Um, and they could go on board live, but um, but I think the, the real distinctive um, new capabilities for this kind of an event would take place in kind of the advanced media world. Yeah, I guess, I guess you have to sell it to the rights holders, don't you? Especially American TV, um, who traditionally have been NBC, but uh, we'll have a, a new broadcaster, won't we, in the States, I believe, for Paris. They've always uh, broadcast major Olympic uh, events on a time delay anyway, haven't they, in the, in the US? So maybe for them, this is nothing revolutionary. Yeah, and I think they've done they've done it on a time delay which which this is perfectly appropriate for because you can do a you know a highlights cut and then they've also been very aggressive about using the advanced media distribution you know online etc and um this event is perfect for that because you know it's there's always something going on you know 24 hours a day for the three days two nights uh, so presumably we're going to have cameras, microphones on board, and uh, someone's going to pay for all that satellite, and we're and we're going to have them live for the whole the whole race. There may be some usage of satellite. Um, obviously, the, if the media is done reasonably sensibly, there'd be some use of LTE coverage. You know where that's available. You know in the coastal regions, but it's not that expensive anymore to do the um, you know continuous sort of internet quality video. Um, you could, if you wanted, you know, store the TV broadcast quality video on board and then later do, you know, a download for, you know, true broadcast quality. But the um, the Internet quality video is is quite affordable to have, you know, a 24 hour a day feed from each of the boats in the event. Stan, plenty more to talk about with you, but I want to bring in Matt Allen again uh, because I wonder, Matt, how accessible do you think this event will be to developing nations and their young sailors? Yeah, look, I think it's really important to have a high degree of accessibility, you know, to developing nations as well as developed countries. I think by looking at the analysis of the fleet of boats right around the world and very close to developing countries, if not in the actual countries, is that there are a lot of boats that you can sail that fit into the general description of what we're looking for for the Olympic event. So... These boats might not all be in one design. They might be sailing under ORC or IRC uh, or a PHRF type handicapping system. So it really allows people to go out and sail these sort of boats in their Olympic preparation so they can try and qualify. Just to clarify, um, when the games happen, though, they'll all be in the same type of boat, yeah? Totally. So once we get to games time, it'll be supplied equipment. Uh, you know, we think that the equipment will be very, very equal playing field. Uh, it, we're going to debate about when we're going to announce the equipment, but obviously that's going to be uh, later rather than sooner. But it doesn't stop people going out and sailing similar types of boats and practicing in similar types of boats. So we're trying to make the event as much about the sailors. So any idea, you know, what type of boat we're likely to see? I know the decision hasn't been made. I think you've got till November 2019. I think that decision is is hopefully going to be made then. Um, have, have you got it down to a small number of boats that you're looking at? 
Well, we've got a universe of boats that we're looking at that all fit in within the original guidelines of the event. But there's also uh, new boats coming out that are going to fit the event as well. And we've, you know, there's boat designers and boat manufacturers right across the world that are looking at this. And so the equipment, we don't want it to be, you know, too radical by nature. So therefore, coming back to the point that I made earlier, it's a sailor's race, not not a sort of a technology race. But so what about qualifying? And again, I know this hasn't been finalised quite yet, um, but how how do you see the nations qualifying? Um, I, I mean, are we likely to see, you know, an African nation? Oh, absolutely. I think with the with the ability to uh, to bring developing nations uh, from Asia, from Africa, from Oceania, um, you know, South America, there's there's obviously a terrific ability to bring uh, other countries into the qualification. Uh, we've got to find boats around the world that are that can be raced equally, and and there will be only so many fleets of those boats. So, you know, in some continents, we might have to fly. Uh, the sailors to the boats um, to centralise them. But that is something that commonly happens, obviously, in in all of Olympic sailing uh, in, in every class. So uh, we're doing an analysis of which classes of boats are actually available throughout the world so we get, can actually find the right places to run the qualifiers um, in every uh, continent. When are you going to announce the type of boat? I think the current thinking is to do that uh, later rather than sooner. So we can provide equal supplied equipment rather than the big countries going out and buying some of these boats because we don't want this to be the the richest countries win. Um, so if you just put your hat on as president of Australian Sailing, um, presumably you'd rather find out or you you'd rather make an announcement sooner rather than later on the type of boat um because that would allow um well let's not make it personal um it's not just the australians it's it's the british it's the kiwis it's the americans it's um all the better funded teams um could just go out and buy a whole fleet of them and and get everyone practicing on them as soon as possible right look uh, so the richer countries like Australia would be uh, very happy to do that and and to put boats in the water and start sailing them and to try and gain an advantage and give our uh, our crews that we would select uh, ultimately an advantage in the Olympic Games. But look, I think we're seeing the bigger picture here. We, we want to see this event uh, succeed. We've put a lot of effort into it. There is... Um, I think a huge opportunity to bring a broader range of people into the sport, not only at the Olympic level, but also people participating in all sorts of different races right around the world and doing that with two people on board. Um, so, you know, that sort of sailing is growing uh, at a rapid pace, and that's great for the sport. But at the Olympic Games, I think we need to make it, uh, you know, a broader event. So uh, lots of countries can attempt to qualify and get a position at the Olympic Games and, and then it'll be down to the sailors. And this will be a broader range of sailors competing than probably most of the other Olympic classes. There'll be a, probably a, a slightly bigger age range and sailing these boats 
might not be so prescriptive in terms of a body type. So, you know, it's just broadening out the offering at the Olympic Games. It's broadening out the sport. And it also brings in people who want to watch an event through um, through the you know, early hours. Um, obviously, different the different time zones, it will suit people in Asia and, and Oceania watching the event through the middle of the night, which will be their daytime. But it also brings in other communities. You know, the e-sailing, I think, will gain a lot of traction. It's becoming very popular and it's a it's an overlapping group, but it's a different group from the average sailor. So this event has got so many different dynamics to it to really broaden the sport and, and also give sailing in the Olympic Games, I think, a, a, a big step up in terms of the numbers of people watching. And what about security over such a large area of water? Yeah, and I think it's a good question. And it's something that came up very early on in the debate about how do we actually manage that. And there's certainly been uh, discussions and you know, some trials with the, you know, the French Navy in terms of um, dispatching warships to protect the fleet. And that's something, obviously, that's uh, you know, pretty commonly done in, uh, in the Olympic arena. So I think the, the ability for the French Navy to keep uh, check on the security aspects is pretty straightforward, but there's also a very strong desire from France as a country to make sure that an offshore event is very success successful in their country, especially given the fact that offshore sailing is really you know one of the top sports in France. Matt, thanks very much. It's a pleasure. Alan. Let's speak to a sailor who is hoping to compete in the offshore event in France at the Paris Games. Um, Hannah Diamond, you have competed in the Laser, the NACRA. You then went on to the Volvo Ocean Race. Um, and now a whole new world has just opened up to you. I'm presuming you're pretty positive about it. Yeah, I'm really excited about the prospect of this event, actually. I know there's been quite a lot of talk about it already, but as we're coming towards Tokyo 2020 and the end of that cycle, it'll be really Exciting to see the events for Marseille, uh, Paris 2024 coming through. You're going to compete with Henry Bombi, who you've just done the fast net in a double-handed boat. Um, so your campaign has begun. But what are the milestones of a campaign to make it to France? Well, I think time is a massive factor in an Olympic campaign. And that's one of the reasons that we have tried to start as early as possible. As soon as the event was announced, we decided that we would team up together and so in the coming months, we're hoping to compete at the L30 Europeans, which are in October, and then also be selected to represent Great Britain at the Offshore World Championships, which will be next October in Malta. Um, past that, the qualification is a little bit vague at the moment in terms of the events that we have to do or win or be selected for. Um, but those are the kind of milestones over the next 12 months that we're looking to hit to get our campaign off to a good start. So, so basically, you have to qualify for your national team in, in the discipline, um, and then obviously the campaign to qualify the nation as, as time goes on. I mean, we haven't even done Tokyo yet. It seems so far out, doesn't it? Who do you think the strongest teams are going to be? Well, I think the obvious one is going to be the French. I think they'll have a number of teams who will be very, very strong. I thought you might say that. <laughs> Well, they've got such a huge culture of shorthanded offshore sailing. This isn't an, an event that's new to them. It's 
kind of a new discipline that's not hugely popular in the UK but I do think we've got good sailors who are able to compete at the highest level and I think any of the sailors that took part in the Volvo Ocean Race uh, in the previous edition will be able to make a really really strong team so I think while maybe there's not so many teams announced at the moment I think over the next 12 months we'll really start to see people coming forward. How did the two of you choose to to team up? Henry approached me at the beginning of this year saying that he had an opportunity for us to do the Fastnet race this year. Um, we were very kindly loaned a boat um, to do that race in and we had actually quite a lot of support from a lot of people locally um, on the south coast in the UK which enabled us to do that race not only take part but also put a campaign together over a short amount of time to get a good result and I think there's quite a small group of people that you can select for or from in this discipline because you do need experience in offshore sailing but you also need experience in the that top level Olympic racing so it's not a huge pool of people you can select from um, and I think we're quite a good match uh, to be racing with each other. Now if you sail a laser at your local club and you're you know 12 years old you can aspire one day to racing it in the olympic games if you're good enough and you can you can try and work towards that but offshore sailing is different isn't it you need big boats um you, it, it's almost a completely different world do you think this is actually going to feed grassroots sailing or not well, I think it's a form of sailing that's a lot more relatable for a lot of people um, who aren't necessarily fully involved in sailing at the moment. The idea that you're sailing from A to B and someone can look on a map and know that you've got to get from one place to another, I think, um, is a lot easier to understand than some of the other formats. That's true. And um, I love Olympic sailing. I love my time sailing the Natural 17 and I learned a huge number of skills from doing that. And I think all of those lessons that I learned in that class have made me become the sailor that I am now. So while maybe it's not such a linear path for a laser sailor when they're 12 years old to look at um, someone who's at the top of that specific class and find it easy to get there, I think if you can pick up as many skills as possible from a number of different classes, that makes you a very well-rounded sailor. And I think that is going to be a really strong feature in this offshore double-handed class because you're going to have to cover so many bases you're going to have to be very very good at a huge number of different things um, and for that reason I think it will inspire grassroots sailing because you have to be such an all-round sailor to succeed in this class. Do you think the coaching is going to be massively different from um, the normal coaching you get I mean are you going to have a coach? I think we're definitely hoping to have a coach. Um, we don't have the resources for that at the moment, but I think we'll see an increase in the number in the amount of resources available to us as Paris 2024 cycle begins. Um, I think we're going to need a lot of help from a lot of outside sources just because there's so much to learn. And actually, four and a half years, five years is not a long time to know everything that we need to know. Um, I think that's what makes Henry and I kind of an interesting pair is because uh, he is very strong in the areas that I'm weaker in and vice versa um, but I think it's very easy in a double-handed boat of any class whether you're inshore racing or offshore racing to have some blind spots and you do need some outside input to make sure that you're covering all of the bases to really iron out your weaknesses because those are the things that show up when it matters the most. 
Well, let's let's just talk about that dynamic on board. Will Sailing are, are trumpeting the fact that it's another mixed class, um, promoting diversity within the sport of sailing. Is there any difference on board a two-handed uh, offshore, you know, keelboat in the Olympic Games? Does it actually matter at all whether you're male or female? Well, the interesting thing that I learned from the Fastnet, which was my first longer race, 600 miles, it was three days, seven hours, I think it took us sure. uh, to do the race. And when you're on deck, you are on your own because the person you're sailing with is resting. And that length of race is about the length of race that they're suggesting for uh, the Olympic Games. And um, so you have to be able to sail single-handed because the other person's always going to be sleeping when you're sailing on deck. And whilst you're up together doing manoeuvres and decision-making, actually you're on your own a lot of the time. Um, and in that respect, I think it can't matter whether you're male or female because you both have to be just as good as each other. Hannah, you missed out on uh, Rio 2016. You just didn't quite um, qualify uh, as part of the British team. So if you make it to Paris 2024, it's going to be your first Olympic Games. Um, A, did you ever think you'd have another chance? Um, and B, uh, what would it mean? Oh, it would mean a huge amount to go to the Games and then hopefully win a medal uh, in 2024. It's something... I dreamt about from watching the Sydney Olympics in 2000 when I was 10 years old and between 10 and the ages of 10 and 26, everything in my life was about trying to go to the Olympics. So getting really close but not quite making it um, to Rio 2016 was really hard for me at that point. And I never actually meant to take a full cycle out of Olympic sailing. It kind of, uh, my path ended up taking a different direction to what I thought it would I just planned to take a couple of months out go and do some different sailing reset myself and then come back for Tokyo 2020 um ended up doing the Volvo Ocean Race which wasn't at all what I planned but I <laughs> so well, it's, not, it's not an offer you can refuse is it exactly and I didn't think I would ever have that opportunity again um and to be honest I did think that was the end of my Olympic sailing so I think that's one of the reasons why I'm really excited by the introduction of this class because it's a really nice return in a discipline that I've spent the last few years doing and I couldn't really have planned that this is how it would turn out um, and hopefully I can make the most of being a little bit more experienced than I was before and hopefully make that dream come true. You probably don't want me telling everyone but you'll be 34 for the Paris Games. Um, you have a much, much longer lifespan, don't you, in um, in offshore sailing. So potentially this could be your first of, of many Olympic Games. Well, I have to make sure we qualify for that one first. And if we can get gold medal in, in attempt number one, then maybe I'll leave it there. I think offshore sailing requires experience. And I really learned that throughout the Volvo Ocean Race, managing yourself and your expectations, managing your energy levels and decision-making over a longer period of time requires experience. Uh, so I don't think it'll be surprising if the average age of the class is a little bit older. Um, but I don't know, maybe for now I'll say if we can get the gold medal in one, then I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Thanks, Hannah. Best of luck. Stan Honey in Newport, as somebody who successfully competed in many of the world's blue ribbon offshore races, is this event one that you'd love to have done? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've spent most of my sailing time, you know, since college, sailing um, either 505s mixed 
or sailing double-handed offshore um, mixed. So this is personally a kind of a, a form of sailing that I think is absolutely fabulous. And, you know, I'm too old now to <laughs> try to put, you know, throw my hat in this ring. But I think it's um, it's one of the most enriching parts of the sport. And I also think it's a part of the sport that reflects, you know, some people say, what about half the people, half the sailors in the world do is, you know, racing around in, you know, small keel boats that have bunks in them. And I think the the skills that will probably be very valuable for an event like this are the skills that you learn, you know, racing coastal races overnight in small keel boats. You know, if you're going to, you know, race in a NACRA or race in, you know, a, a skiff, it takes, you know, a huge amount of tuning. And I think, you know, for this kind of offshore event, you know, once the equipment is selected, you'll want to certainly, you know, get similar boats or get the exact boat and try to, you know, sort out how to tune it and all that. But I think another set of extremely important skills would be the seamanship skills of how to, you know, how to sort of budget your energies and your sleep. And then the seamanship skills of coastal racing, meaning what does it mean when the suddenly the dew dries on deck in the middle of the night? And what does it mean when the horizon clears in the morning? And what does it mean when it smells like grass at night? You know, where do you go? And in these kinds of coastal races, you can have, you know, four or more wind transitions per day. And so I think, you know, a young person, depending on where in the world they are, you know, these kinds of boats may actually be quite accessible. And then the training would be, you know, perfectly fine to race those boats, you know, under rating systems, you know, in coastal races. Why do you like the three-day, two-night format? Because it's too long to sprint. It's much more representative of offshore skills if you have an event that's long enough so that you can't sprint. So you have to, you know, you have to take naps and you have to sort of husband your resources and your energy and, you know, apply those energies, you know, most appropriately. And finally, what qualities, and I'm asking you as a man who's done so much offshore sailing and sailed around the world uh, a few times, um, what qualities do the sailors need to win gold? You know, that's a, it's a great question. But I think, you know, you look at the successful offshore sailors and they're, they're open-minded, they're smart, and they're fit and they're um tireless and i think um i think open-minded to what open-minded to try to understand the weather pattern that's going on to try to understand the you know evolving tactics in the race but they're you know on an offshore sailor you can't you can't you need a plan going into the start of a race but you also need to be open-minded because that plan has to change and um you know, over a three-day race, the, you need sailors that are, um, you know, inquisitive and open-minded about what the, you know, what the tactical and strategic, you know, evolving plan is in order to, uh, you know, compete. What about the technology? You talk about seamanship, but these days, tech is, is all part of it, isn't it? If it were up to me, I would have this race be held with simple electronics on the boat just the standard instruments that you need for media anyway that you know reads out wind speed and wind direction and all that but i wouldn't have the computing i wouldn't have grib files i wouldn't have people using adrena and expedition um, and i would have people just access the weather that you get you know voice weather over the marine vhf just like the old days and so that would really put the emphasis on um kind of the coastal seamanship 
But another interesting question is autopilots. And so, you know, my personal view is that this should be raced without autopilots and that you double hand if you're changing sails, you know, you got to have one person steering and the other person, you know, changing sails and the helmsman is helping where they can by reaching and, you know, pulling on strings. But I think it would be just tragic if, you know, you had footage of a boat sailing along with both sailors below deck in the Olympics. <laughs> and then the other thing about providing autopilots is, you know, what if one breaks? You know, the redress issues are just, you know, way too complicated for a single race event. So I think, I think the boats ought to be simple. The electronics ought to be simple. And then because it's supplied equipment, you assign the boats a week early and you tell the crews, hey, this is an offshore event. You know, if you don't finish, you can't win. You got to inspect your boat, find any latent defects, and then you have to take care of it during the race. And if you break it, um, that's on you, but there's no redress. You know, you, so you got to look after your gear. And, you know, old, you know, decades ago, we used to say that, you know, the boats can take more than the people can. Well, that's not true. You know, these days, any offshore crew can break the boat. What you have to do is not break the boat in order to win. And so that's why I think that um, it should be a simple event, simple electronics, um, no redress. The crews, you know, have to look after the, the boats, um, just like you have to in the real world. Thanks, Stan. It's been a, a real eye-opener. It's fascinating stuff. And thanks for opening up on uh, the work of the uh, Oceanic Committee uh, at World Sailing and, and you know how, how the decision all came about. And if you want to make sure that you never miss an episode of Sailing Uncovered, just click on the subscribe button or the follow button. It depends what platform you're listening to us on. And uh, you will receive the next episodes automatically uh, into your app. So uh, please do that. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening. See you next month. From me, Alec Wilkinson, it's goodbye.